tonight I'd like to explore the topic of dukkha, of suffering, and I'd like to explore how we can use this experience of suffering as a guide in our practice. So I'd like to begin by just talking a little bit about this word dukkha. That's the Pali term which we usually, we usually translate as suffering. But that, that translation often, um, in our language at least, has a broad context, a broad large context sometimes. You know, we, when we hear the word suffering, we think of catastrophe, disease, accident, tsunamis. We think of larger things. And the, 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 the term dukkha actually has a broader set of meanings. And so I'd like to explore this broader set of meanings from a couple different perspectives as a way to begin. So the the kind of the main usage of the term dukkha in the texts is within the context of the Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering, dukkha satcha, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. So in this context, the term dukkha, the the understanding in the Four Noble Truths is that it is something that can be transcended, overcome. We can come to the end of this dukkha. So what is this dukkha that we can come to the end of? This is one of the definitions in the texts. There are three that I know of, and I'll talk about all three just briefly tonight. Three different ways that the term dukkha is used. So in this term, as it's used in the Four Noble Truths, this kind of dukkha is a, is a kind of a result of mental reactivity. The Second Noble Truth indicates that the cause of dukkha is Wanting, craving, the Pali word tanha. So the, uh, this kind of dukkha of the first noble truth is a specific kind of suffering that's related to the fact that we crave things. Basically, we want things. We want to have things that we like. We want to get rid of things that we don't like. When things are pleasant, we like them, we want more of them. When things are unpleasant, we want to get rid of them, push them away. And so in a a very simple way, in a very natural way, in fact, a very um, human way, a very biological way almost, we react to pleasant and unpleasant. And so this... Dukkha of the First Noble Truth is is really about a kind of a mental reactivity to our experience. 
And I'll talk more about this in in depth tonight. The other two kinds of dukkha that are talked about in the texts. The first is um, in the context of what's talked about as feeling, vedna, the, the, the way all experience, no matter what our experience is, it has a quality of this feeling tone of being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, or we sometimes say neutral. The term for the uh, unpleasant feeling tone, just you know, just like our body, our body feels unpleasant sensation when you know if we cut it with a knife, if we fall down and bruise our knee. You know, there's unpleasant sensation that arises in our body, and this term for this unpleasant sensation is dukkha. So this physical unpleasantness. Also, that is also used this term dukkha in the texts. The other place that the term dukkha is used is in a, it's kind of a famous um, three part phrase. It's uh, sabe sankara anicca, which basically translated means something like all conditioned things are impermanent. The second phrase is sabe sankara dukkha. All conditioned things are dukkha, often translated as suffering, but in this context, as I'll explain more, unreliable is perhaps a better term. And the third phrase is sabe dhamma anatta. All experience is not self. So this this term here in this use, sabe sankara dukkha, all conditioned things are dukkha. In this way of understanding, it's any phenomenon that happens is understood to be dukkha, is understood to be essentially unreliable as a place or a, an experience around which true, deep happiness can be found. And so that whatever experience we have, whether it's a pleasant experience, an unpleasant experience, a neutral experience, the very unreliability, the very impermanence of that phenomenon, that experience, indicates that it is not going to be a place that we can find a lasting satisfaction. It's going to disappear, so there's no way that we can find a lasting satisfaction out of that experience. So this understanding, this, this, this uh, three-part phrase, is often described as the three characteristics of experience. I'm sure you've heard this, the three characteristics all all phenomenon are impermanent, all phenomenon are suffering, all phenomenon are not self. And in this understanding, it's actually all conditioned phenomenon are impermanent, all conditioned phenomenon are suffering, dukkha, all conditioned, all 
All phenomena are not self. This is true whether or not there's any reactivity in our minds. The fact of change means that phenomena are unreliable just in their own nature. They're unreliable. So the the fact of our clinging or not clinging or grasping or pushing away or holding on to those phenomena is irrelevant in terms of their um, having this quality or this characteristic. And so this, this I think, is where the... Um, the understanding comes from, or the, you know, people, people say, oh, the Buddha taught everything is suffering. Well, he did, in this sense, teach that everything is unreliable. Everything, everything has the, uh, the, the flavor of, if clung to, it will produce suffering. So, these, 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 two, this, these two kinds of dukkha, the dukkha of the physical pain of the body, that too is something that is not going to go away. That is not a kind of dukkha that will go away with practice. This kind of unreliability of phenomenon. Phenomena will remain unreliable whether or not we cling to them. It is not these kinds of dukkha that the Third Noble Truth is talking about transcending. It is our misunderstanding of experience, our misunderstanding, our misperception around, our confusion, really our confusion around experience that leads us to um, be unable to accept these, these, these two kinds of dukkha. It's very hard for us to accept physical pain. It's very hard for us to accept the unreliability of experience. We want to push away physical pain. We want to hold on to experience, hoping that something, something, anything will do it for me. Surely there's got to be some experience out there that will make me happy. So it's our, our misunderstanding, our confusion around those two kinds of dukkha that can't change that produces this dukkha of the first noble truth. Our reactivity to physical pain, our grasping onto phenomenon, hoping something will make us happy. This reactivity, this is the dukkha of the first noble truth, and this is the kind of dukkha that the Buddha said can come to an end. So the, uh, the dukkha of the first noble truth has quite a broad range. It is way more than the major kinds of suffering that we think of when we use that, when we use that term in English. And so some translators have used other terms Tanisaro Bhikkhu uses the term stress to translate dukkha. And there's ways that I like this term. 
partly because it really, stress for us is a mental phenomenon. When we hear the word stress, we think of mental phenomena usually. We think of something happening in our minds. So that indicates or points to this aspect of dukkha, of the first noble truth, as being something that happens in our minds. And in fact, one definition of the freedom from this kind of dukkha, the ending of dukkha, one way that that state of nibbana, of freedom, is defined, is as freedom from mental pain and grief. That one can experience that state of no mental pain or grief. And so this is really pointing to the fact that the dukkha of the First Noble Truth is a mental phenomenon. It happens in our minds. Now, of course, it happens in reaction to bodily sensation. It happens in reaction to phenomena, events in the world. It happens in response to, in reaction to things we see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we touch. It happens in response to things we think or feel or perceive. So this translation of stress conveys this sense of mental reactivity. And also it conveys the sense or the recognition, the understanding that dukkha can be pretty subtle. Stress, you know, we can be a little bit stressed. We can have a little bit of clenching in our stomach as we sit and wait for a practice discussion. That's dukkha. We can have a little bit of anxiety about the last egg on the table. That's dukkha. So the, the range of dukkha traverses from the subtlest kinds of unease to the major sufferings of our lives. So it includes all of our mental, afflictive, emotional states, as well as subtler states of unease, just a subtle sense of offness, just things not quite feeling right, a sense of, hmm, if only I tweaked a little bit, things would be better. So this dukkha includes, includes all of these. So understanding that the dukkha is in our minds, it's a mental phenomenon, it's a mental experience, a mental process that this dukkha of the first noble truth happens in our minds. And that the second noble truth indicates the cause of dukkha is this wanting, this craving. Essentially this reactivity, not liking things, wanting to push them away, liking things, wanting to hold on to them. 
So essentially, reactivity around wanting things to be pleasant, wanting to get rid of things that are unpleasant. Kind of not being aligned with, not not accepting, I talked about acceptance a little bit yesterday morning, not accepting the way things are in this moment. Endlessly feeling like we want to negotiate and fix or change or alter or shift things. So wanting things to be other than they are. This wanting, the second noble truth teaches us this wanting, this craving, tanha is the Pali term. This wanting is the cause of our distress our suffering. This wanting is the cause of the dissatisfaction, the unease. We can explore this kind of as a a mental exercise. You know, thinking about something that you might want to have, or, you know, maybe you want a different room, or more leftovers at supper, you know, maybe you, there's something that you, you want that would be like, you'd like to have. And maybe it doesn't cause you much suffering, but, you know, just thinking about something that you might want here on the retreat. And then just imagine the possibility of that wanting going away. the wanting goes away, the dissatisfaction goes away. Any kind of struggle or stress or unease goes away. So the the suffering, the dukkha, is caused by this craving, this wanting. There's so many different ways that we want things. I'd like to explore this a little bit with you. Just exploring how we want things. I I kind of did an exploration myself of how I want things. And there's so many different ways. I was kind of shocked when I went through the different ways I want things. I mean, there's the obvious ones of wanting to have things that are pleasant, wanting to get rid of things that are unpleasant. There's wanting to fix or change something. This is one that's very common for me. It's like rather than wanting to get rid of something that's unpleasant, I want to fix it. I want to tweak it. We might want to be seen or recognized. We might want to be someone. We might want to be the one who's in charge. We might want to be the one who has a good meditation practice. We might want to be the one who can attain states of concentration. We might want to be the one who is peaceful. We might want to know what to do. 
in a, a something that seems to come up for us sometimes in practice is you know, we're in some state and the thing that comes up in our mind is what's next? What's next? What am I supposed to do with this? And that's a kind of a wanting. You know, there's, there's a feeling of it's not okay just to be with this. There's something I'm supposed to do with it. So wanting to do something. So all of these kinds of wanting, these ways that we want, as we begin to explore the connection between wanting and our suffering, as we begin to explore that connection, we really begin to to get it. Not only is the suffering created in our minds. The thing, the wanting, the wanting is also created in our minds. And when we explore it even more deeply, we realize that the thing that we want is actually also simply something that's arising in our minds. You know, we don't actually want that spot in the hall, or we don't actually want that thing that's out there. What we want is our idea of that thing. So as we really begin to explore this wanting, suffering connection, we begin to really get it that this process of suffering is something that happens in our minds. This is really good news, because the fact that it happens in our minds and the fortunate fact that it's not hardwired in our minds. It's not automatic. It's not biologically wired that when there's something unpleasant, we have to hate it and want to get rid of it. It's not biologically wired when there's something pleasant that we have to gravitate towards it and hold on to it. So fortunately for us, it's not biologically wired. It is created in our minds. This fact that it's created in our minds means that it's possible to shift, change, alter our relationship to experience. When we see that the wanting is creating the suffering, and the more we see this in our own experience, the more we actually recognize this link between wanting and suffering, the more we recognize, it's not us that actually recognizes it. In my experience, it's, it's like the training. We, we sit and pay attention to dukkha. We, the first noble truth, the Buddha's instruction, understand dukkha. Understanding me, not thinking about, not reflecting on, but turning towards meeting the experience of dukkha. Being mindful of body and mind in this state. Anger is arising, a state of dukkha. Body feels like this. Mind feels like this. This is this understanding of dukkha. We get an education in the suffering nature of the experience, of anger in this case, of any any kind of dukkha. When we're willing to sit with it, be with it, understand it in this way, the body and mind understands We don't have to learn this. We don't have to, it doesn't have to be me that knows this. The organism begins to understand 
this is suffering. This is not well-being. And as the exploration continues, we continue to explore this dukkha, explore, in this case, anger. Noticing body, noticing mind. We may begin to see the wanting that is tied up with that anger, the wanting to be right, whatever kind of wanting. There's so many different ways we can get into anger. So whatever wanting it is, whenever we see that, that kind of inclining towards anger, we, we, we begin to understand that wanting that's tied up with the suffering. And then at some point, even further down the line, for me, this kind of exploration took months for this pattern, a pattern I was observing, a dukkha pattern I was observing around anger. And then at one point I saw, my mind saw the mind kind of inclining towards that anger. A thought arose about a person I was angry with. And I felt, I felt the mind kind of like there was this momentum of a freight train wanting to jump on that thought and think more thoughts in order to get angry. And because the organism had spent enough mindful time in this space of understanding dukkha for what it was, the mind itself recognized that intention towards anger, that way lies suffering. And the mind itself let that intention go. This is part of how our practice unfolds. We explore our suffering, we we use our suffering to help us understand ourselves. That mindfulness of the suffering helps our mind begin to understand how the wanting contributes. And then when the mind sees that wanting, the mind understands that it doesn't want to go towards dukkha. So the mind can let it go almost the way your body lets go of touching something hot on the stove. You know, before we even really feel the pain of the heat, the, the body is always already pulling back because it knows that way lies suffering. So this exploration of understanding dukkha begins to educate this organism, this mind-body process, this organism of dukkha. What is dukkha? Dukkha does not equal well-being. It's a very simple lesson the mind and body learns. So we can use this exploration of dukkha as a guide for us. The the Four Noble Truths lays out the entirety of our practice, of our path, in terms of exploring this question of dukkha, exploring understanding dukkha, exploring how we might be able to let go of the cause of dukkha, exploring the ending of dukkha, 
and exploring the conditions, the causes that support that ending of dukkha, the path of practice, the Eightfold Path. So the Buddha pointed out this exploration around dukkha is our practice. And so we can look at dukkha as being a guide for us. It points out, whenever there's any kind of dukkha, small or large, it points out that there's something happening in our mind, some extra holding, craving, pushing away. So the dukkha is is a signpost for us. There's something here to pay attention to. Anytime there is dukkha, there's some kind of wanting. So the suffering is a pointer for us that there's something that can be let go of. We can begin to explore these different kinds of wantings. There's a kind of a a new age saying, something along the lines of, you know, life gives us the lessons that we need, something like that. And, uh, you know, I believe this is true, but I don't think of it quite in the way perhaps that the new age sense of it conveys, that life is out there somehow designing situations for us so that we meet these situations. We get the lessons we need because in every moment we are meeting our own minds. We are meeting our minds and how they are craving, wanting, pushing, pulling, liking, not liking. In every moment, this is what creates our suffering. This is what creates the lessons that we need. Life does give us the lessons we need. Our, our mind gives us the lessons we need if we are willing to open to this exploration of dukkha. So we really can use our suffering as a guide for us. The second noble truth of letting go of craving. That's the, you know, the first noble truth the Buddha recommends, understanding dukkha, understanding suffering. The second noble truth, the action the Buddha suggested we explore with respect to the second noble truth is to abandon the craving, abandon the wanting. That's easier said than done. That is not often something we can choose to do, in my experience. I remember sitting on retreat at the three-month course and feeling the dukkha, feeling the craving, feeling the clinging onto whatever it was, and recognizing, I have no idea how to let go of this. 
You know, it's like the mind was so tightly latched onto that experience. There was no way for me to consciously let go. And so this instruction around letting go of the cause of suffering, a lot of our practice has to do with our relationship to this instruction. It's not so much about actively saying, oh, there's clinging, be gone clinging. You know, that just doesn't happen very often. But we can recognize, actually, what I found happens is that when we really see the clinging happening, we recognize the clinging. We feel the suffering of that clinging. And so the way to letting go of that clinging is to recognize this very clinging is suffering itself. And this suffering needs to be understood. So can I be with that suffering of the holding itself? And this is a lot of our practice. It's basically a letting be of this craving. Can we let it be? Can we um, allow it with mindfulness? Not allow it and encourage it. Not allow it and act on it. The middle path is about neither repressing nor expressing our reactivity. So that craving, that wanting to get rid of, that wanting to hold on to, it's fine for those to come up. If they've come up, they've already come up. They've already arisen. That's what I was saying yesterday. That's the acceptance of what has already arisen. Aligning ourselves with truth. Yes, this clinging is here. Can I meet that? Can I be with that? Very uh, gentle being with allows that clinging to take its own course. And again, we also learn from this exploration, we're understanding the suffering of that craving itself. We begin to understand viscerally that this craving itself is not conducive to well-being. So again, the body-mind organism gets an education. This craving is not the way to happiness. So really I'm encouraging, hopefully encouraging you to be willing and interested to explore the dukkha. Explore the suffering, the willingness to meet it, to be with it, with the understanding that this education that the mind and body are getting helps the mind learn how to let go. The mind will begin to understand how to let go of this clinging. It's often not something we can consciously choose to do. The mind can let go of it, as I described with that situation around the anger. My mind, the mind seeing itself propelling headlong towards anger, propelling headlong towards suffering, the mind knew, no. And it wasn't any kind of aversion or resistance to going to the anger. It was uh, the mind going, That way lies dukkha. Let it go. To the mind, let it go. 
So this is a lot of how we practice with the second noble truth. So this letting go of wanting, this practice around being with, letting be, the clinging, and the whole exploration of letting go of wanting actually is an interesting process in our minds. So I've described a little bit about how I've seen it happen the mind beginning to get the education around dukkha, seeing how the wanting leads to the suffering, the mind seeing the wanting arise and simply letting it go. So there's, there's, that's part of the process of the letting go around wanting. And then there's another kind of almost stages of letting go that happen in our practice. You know, our initial levels of dukkha are the more obvious kind. We have anger, hatred, frustration, desire, um, confusion, boredom, the kind of pride. We have, you know, the afflictive emotions. We have uh, these emotions that feel off to us. And as we practice, you know, kind of like, like my exploration around anger, As we practice with it, our mind begins to understand the suffering of that and begins to let it go. So there's not so much, those afflictive emotions, a layer of those afflictive emotions can begin to fall away or loosen or they don't catch us quite so much anymore. And as we practice, some of the more obvious forms of suffering can begin to let go. And underneath, a subtler kind of suffering can be revealed. So the, the, there are layers of suffering, layers of clinging, very deeply layered in our minds. And in a way, you know, we, we sometimes have this um, recognition in our practice or uh, some kind of... Um, uh, exploration around wanting that begins to arise around the practice itself. I'm sure that you've, many of you or all of you even have experienced this wanting around the practice. You know, we have a state of difficulty arises and we want to practice partly to get rid of that difficult state. So there's a kind of a subtler kind of wanting that's going on. You know, there's, the, there's the, the wanting that's locked in place around the difficult state, the wanting to be seen or heard or to be right. And, un, you know, and then exploring that, we begin to see that kind of wanting. And then we may begin to understand that inside, as we're exploring with our practice, that there's a wanting around doing the practice. And we recognize this, actually. Often we recognize this pretty early. I've had um, somebody come up to me after one of my weekly classes in Redwood City in California, and he was talking about, you know, his wanting to engage in the practice has been really helpful because it's helped him get over some really unpleasant, unfortunate circumstances. But he sees now that this is wanting. He's like... 
if I don't want that, then you know, how do I how do I get over these unfortunate, difficult circumstances? This kind of exploration, you know, we, we begin to understand intellectually actually first. I think that there is a kind of a wanting involved in our practice. So we begin to recognize, oh yeah, the fact that I I want to practice there there. Some of it is a wholesome kind of chanda of the, the, uh, the, the kind of desire that can fuel um, wholesome states, wholesome practices. And some of it is also connected with wanting to get rid of all the difficulty. So we see this kind of mixed motivation. And it's, it's, it's like it's an intellectual seeing of that in a way. We recognize, yeah, there's wanting in my practice. In my, in my very early, I think my very first week-long retreat, my very first 10-day retreat, I felt myself create this identity as being, I am going to be a good meditator. And I could see that that was happening. But I could also see it was a really useful thing to be doing at that time. Because... Uh, there was so much of that more obvious kind of suffering happening. And so in a way, this staged kind of letting go of wanting is that we, you know, we have this obvious kind of suffering. And in order to let go of that more obvious kind of suffering, it's helpful to kind of take a step onto a stepping stone of Okay, can I can I land on the practice for a while? And landing on the practice, landing on exploring the difficult emotions, we begin to be able to loosen our attachments on this stepping stone. And then we begin to be able to land more fully on the practice. At that point, when we're more in, into uh, exploring experience, um, the, the la- some of the larger layers of suffering have fallen away, we begin to actually experience the kind of subtler levels of suffering around the practice itself. You know, wanting to get rid of difficult states, wanting to find, construct states of calm, of peace, of joy. So in terms of this question of using suffering as a guide, we can, I've had this person that came and talked to me about this confusion about, well, I I see that I want to do the practice in order to get rid of all that difficulty. So, right, I'm not supposed to want to do the practice, but then what do I do? I just get mired in the difficulty. I said, well, how about letting go of the, you know, being stuck to that difficulty? You know, it's like there's, there's, um, we use the wanting of the letting go of suffering to help us let go of that more obvious suffering. And usually in that place, the more obvious suffering is kind of obscuring the suffering around the practice itself. 
So the suffering around the practice itself, the wanting around the practice itself, and I asked this person, are you experiencing the suffering of wanting to practice? He said, no, it feels good to want to practice. I just know there's wanting in there. So this is a kind of an intellectual knowing of that wanting. It's not an actual meeting of that wanting. And my rough guide for people in using suffering as a guide is as when it becomes clear to you that you are suffering, that is when to begin to, to explore it, to begin to investigate it. So the time to investigate that suffering around the practice, around wanting to get rid of difficult states, is when we start to feel the suffering of it, and you will at some point really viscerally feel the suffering of that, the suffering of wanting to construct a state we had yesterday. You will feel that. That is when to use that exploration, suffering as a guide. Not when it's just an idea in our mind. Oh, I want that state. I want, I want that beautiful state, so I'm going to practice. If we're not feeling the suffering of that, that's not the time to try to let go of that wanting. You'll feel this. I mean, Steve Armstrong has this great uh, saying of, there's nothing like a great sitting to ruin your day. You have a sitting that's just so clear, so collected, and the next sitting isn't. And you spend the rest of your time trying to figure out what you're doing wrong. How can I get back to that? There, the wanting of that state becomes really clear. In the midst of that state, that beautiful state of mind, there may have been some clinging. But that wasn't the time to begin to explore it. It wasn't so obvious. So kind of in terms of the layers of suffering, I like to suggest, you know, just meeting, meeting the outer layer. What's obvious around the suffering? Trying to jump over, dig inside, figure out, well, I know there's something inside there, and that's what I have to get to. That's an idea. And generally, it's not as helpful for us to have that kind of leaping over uh, attitude or agenda in our minds because our minds are great constructors of experience. If we're looking for something, we'll probably find it, whether or not it was there to begin with or not. So meeting what is here now, what is obvious, what is clear, what we can touch now, rather than digging, looking. This is investigation. My teacher, Sayada Upandita, uses an analogy of investigation as being like polishing a bowl with a soft cloth. So taking the bowl and you're polishing, you're rubbing, you're staying in contact with the bowl. You're meeting the surface, the entire surface of that. That's investigation. Not trying to take an ice pick and pick the thing apart. Not trying to pull it apart and see what's in the middle. Just meeting what's 
obvious. So I just like to end by reflecting on this teaching of the Buddha around the Four Noble Truths that the understanding of suffering, when suffering is arising, you know, this is our path. It's not something that we have to get over in order to get to the real practice. I had that delusion, that belief, for quite a long time on one three-month course, during which time I spent a great deal of time both being lost in and exploring, investigating with mindfulness, the arising of self-hatred. For a chunk of that retreat, first few weeks, I I don't know how long, quite a long time, in that retreat, I thought, okay, yeah, the self-hatred is happening, but I need to get over this. I need to get past this. And that's when the practice will really begin. It was so pervasive. It was so strong. It was so much a part. It was like that. this was my self-hatred retreat. You know, I really... It was up in spades on that retreat. And at some point, it was kind of like I had to surrender. It's like, okay, I guess this retreat is not, my, my, the way I phrased it to myself is this not, is not going to be the retreat in which I get enlightened. But maybe I'll learn something about my self-hatred. So I kind of surrendered to this and okay if self-hatred is what's arising you know that's what I got to pay attention to when I finally had that shift there was much more of a willingness to be with the self-hatred watch it as it arose now it certainly didn't make it pleasant and there were a number of understandings insights that unfolded along the way on this retreat over the course of weeks And then there was one evening where I saw the whole pattern of self-hatred coming up, beginning to arise, and I just went back to my room. It was after a Dharma talk. I went back to my room, and it's like, okay, I'm just going to meet this. I'm just going to meet this. And there was a, a strong sense of resolve. I'm just going to meet this. The moment I see the mind shading towards that, thought of, you're no good, you're a failure, you know, those thoughts that would come up in my mind. The moment I saw that, I would just recognize that's contact, and that's an unpleasant phenomenon. So just noticing that over and over again, over and over again. And in that process, seeing very, very clearly at some moment in this exploration, This is simply a phenomenon arising in the mind. 
just an empty thought. It is nothing. It's a thought. And in that moment, the mind, the the pattern of self-hatred just like crumbled and was replaced by bliss within a split second. And then there was this little thought that said, oh, never again am I going to feel that self-hatred. And then I was like, no. <laughs> there was a recognition, yeah, and this, this, this insight too, this is impermanent. So there were a number of really profound seeings in that split second. First of all, there was the seeing of the emptiness, the, the, just the corelessness of that thought. There was a recognition of the kind of grasping onto that insight, the recognition that that way lies suffering, the letting go of that, the balance of mind that resulted. Very, very deep insight. And actually, in terms of that pattern of self-hatred, that particular insight was like, you know, uprooting a tree. You know, it's I didn't trust it for years that it was really so largely gone. But it was a couple of years before I even noticed anything like self-hatred again. And then I began to recognize there are there are little bits coming up here and there. There's there's the thought, you're no good, that arises. But it's like, oh yeah, there's a thought. And there's no belief in that thought anymore. And so it's like that insight into the coreless, the, the ephemeral nature, the fact that it just is a thought, cut the belief in that pattern. So very deep insight into anicca, anatta, while observing self-hatred. That moment I recognized, it just doesn't matter what's going on. What matters is that I meet it. The practice can unfold right in the midst of dukkha. It doesn't have to be something that we work our way through, we chug our way through, and then finally we you know, come to a space where we can sit in calm and peace and clarity and maybe at some point become enlightened. This exploration of dukkha is, it's, it's completely intertwined with our freedom. It's not a problem. It is just something to witness, to bring mindfulness to. Mindfulness and wisdom brought together. The wisdom of understanding, the helpfulness of observing. This is just a phenomenon. Can I observe this phenomenon? Mindfulness and wisdom together bring this freedom, no matter what our experience is. Suffering can be our... Suffering is kind of the, the way we navigate our minds. Clinging results in suffering. Subtler forms of clinging are what get revealed as we practice. 
We're not going to get through this practice without experiencing suffering. (laughs) And we can actually have some lightness around it, too. So let's end by chanting the reflection on sharing of blessings, which is on the back side of the refuges and precepts. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.